Good afternoon, and welcome to Healthcare CIOs and CISOs Guide to Security-Driven Networking, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Fortinet. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I'll be your moderator today. We're looking forward to some audience participation. You can send in your questions and comments at any time in the Q&A box, um, and we'll take them later in the program. And we're going to do a poll, and we're going to have our panelists guess on the results. So that's always lots of fun. A uh, nice way to view the screen, click on the top center uh, and get that into side-by-side -side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get those boxes the size you like them. And it should say speaker's view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Christopher Friends, AVP of Information Security at Interfaith Medical Center, Phil Campbell, CIO and VP of Information Services at Calvert Health Medical Center, Krishna, uh, Krishna Sankvaram, Executive Director of IT at UT School of Public Health at Houston, and Jonathan Nguyen, VP Global Field CISO Team at Fortinet. So let's jump right in with our discussion. Chris, uh, let's start off with you. Can you give me an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. Thank you for having me. I'm Chris Friends. I'm the AVP of Information Security for Interfaith Medical Center, and we are a hospital located in Brooklyn, New York. Excellent. Thank you, Phil. Hi, Phil Campbell. I'm the CIO and Vice President of Information Services at Calvert Health Medical Center in Prince Frederick, Maryland. And um, Calvert Health is a community hospital, a small independent community hospital, one of the last few in Maryland. Very good. Krishna? I'm Krishna Sinkavaram. I'm the Executive Director of IT for University of Texas School of Public Health. I'm in Houston. We are an academic institution and a medical center. Excellent. Jonathan? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm Jonathan Nguyen. I'm a field CISO at Fortinet, and we are the largest pure play cybersecurity company in the industry with everything from SD-WAN to probably the, the, the largest and most comprehensive SASE portfolio as well. Thanks for having me here. Oh, you've got it. All right, let's get right into it. Uh, Phil, let's start with you. How would you define the concept of security-driven networking? I think it starts with, um, with thinking about networking with security already built in. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you don't, um, if you build a network and then try to layer security on top of it, you just wind up with a lot of holes and gaps and seams. Um, but whenever you whenever you start with, um, okay, I'm putting in this server. How, what, who, what's this server going to communicate to? Who's going to communicate to this server? How are we going to control that uh, interchange? Uh, that that's that's really putting security first as you build that networking out. Phil, let me ask you: Do you um, think of yourself as a security? I don't know, savvy CIO. I would imagine everyone's got a different level of um, interest in security or ability in the CIO position. So some may need a stronger CISO. Some may say, listen, I've, I've got this. I'm a security guy. You think it varies, goes across the board there? Absolutely. Well, we're an independent community hospital, and so um, we really don't have the staffing to be able to hire a separate CISO. And so I sort of pick up all the security responsibilities at the executive level anyway. Um, personally, uh, I'm, um, I don't have the T-shirt for being a CIO. Um, I was an intelligence officer in the Navy for uh, a lot of years and retired um, as a naval intelligence officer. And so um, security is sort of always in the back of my head because of um, my uh, prior career. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just comfortable subject for you. Yeah. yeah. Krishna? Um, I think I would say uh, that it's more um, uh, protecting everything from end to end. So it protects your data, it protects your applications, it protects your workflow and the path from your client or your user, whoever is trying to access the data, all the way up to the data itself. I think um, 
you set up your environment and your network environment in such a way that you can control access from one end to the other end. And I think I see it more that way. So when we set up an environment uh, in especially in healthcare um, areas, we need to, at least what we are trying to do is to go down to that level and say we control the access from end to end. And that to me more is a, a security fabric in a sense for that particular application. Very good, very good. Uh, John? Yeah, hey, thanks. Uh, you know, security-driven networking, I, I think, reflects what's happening in the industry today, which is that you really can't separate security and networking. Uh, most everyone here on this call is going to have a business objective requirement and a customer or patient experience requirement. And one of the things we're finding right now is that your, the outcome of that experience uh, becomes negated if the security function isn't working and if the WAN optimization is not there to ensure the bandwidth and to have the access. And so security-driven networking is this concept where networking and security are converged. Uh, they work together because, you know, we really can't think of security and networking operating in separate silos any longer. So they have to work together and security has to be wherever the computing is done where the data is stored, curated, correlated to use. And so as, as everyone has basically said, I think it just flows as one integrated function. And that's, that's really what this Fortinet security fabric is, is all about. Very good, Chris. I definitely agree with everything said so far. And for me, a lot of security driven networking is really taking that zero trust approach, yeah. only ensuring that what's allowed is allowed through and nothing else. If it's not essential communication it should be blocked by default. And that's pretty much the approach that we've taken in our environment for a long time. And I also would agree that it has to be a defense in depth approach, that there has to be you know, multiple layers to security that should exist at the network level, at the application level, at the operating system level. There has to be you know, many, many layers of security that have to work together. And it really has to be built in. It can't really be bolted on later. Very good. All right. We're going to go to our next question. And we're going to start with Krishna. What types of security vulnerabilities did addressing COVID-19 exacerbate or create? Um, I think this is really uh, uh, such a new problem and, uh, that we all faced, I think, everywhere. And I think we particularly faced this because we are both an educational institution with um, a large number of students in various schools and healthcare. Uh, when this hit us sometime in March, I think the first thing that um, we faced was VPN overload. Uh, our <laughs> VPNs were not used to handling this at all, not this kind of load. But, you know, we did have a reasonable amount of load on VPNs, but this sort of shot through the roof when the entire campus was locked down and everybody needed to come in through VPN. That was the first thing that we could see. And the second one was... Um, uh, WebEx. We use WebEx. Um, and um, uh, Zoom is being used in certain areas, but we have a license for WebEx and it's, it was pretty stable. But, you know, we went, we, we had about, you know, three, 400 meetings a week to, we hit the max of about 9,800 a week because everybody uh, was using that. And, that was the, those two were, I think, the visibly for, from a customer standpoint, that was the uh, biggest hit that we saw. And, and because of that, uh, a whole slew of things, people connecting from home um, and a large number of people. So we did not know um, who, um, how their home PCs are. We control it to a certain extent and we block, you know, everything. And at least we tell them, uh, you know, hey, you're using Windows 7 or something very old. It's not supported. We need you to upgrade to Windows 10, things like that. But this was just out of control. So, and when your PC at home is not necessarily being used just by you, it is also being used by the kids and everybody else at home. You know, the malware that will be pulled into your PCs just shot up. So that was an unexpected thing that uh, we had to face. And I think our um, um, firewall team and the VPN team did the best that they could, but it was very difficult to manage um, um, at that stage. So that was the, um, I think the first thing that we hit. And once they're inside the, the LAN in the proper way, then, you know, 
that didn't change that much. We have we have a very pretty um, tight, um, secure environment inside, so we were okay. It's just that getting people in through the VPN in a in a secure way and we trusting something which we don't I don't we don't trust. So we had to constantly keep verifying what they have and how they're doing it. So I think that would that was the a very steep curve that we saw earlier this um, this uh, year, you know, um, March, April, May, which was quite tough. Very good, Chris. I definitely agree that remote access was a, a huge um, issue for a lot of hospitals, and it did potentially introduce a lot of vulnerabilities. A lot of hospitals really scaled it out very quickly. They didn't pay attention to a lot of the normal security procedures and just rolling it out. So that's a potential vulnerability for a lot of healthcare organizations. Yeah, so in terms of the security, um, for us, I, you know, I, like Chris and Krishna were saying, you know, getting folks into the network was certainly, um, uh, for us, not a huge issue. We actually were um, in a pretty good position for that. We um, have a robust Citrix environment. Because we're a community hospital, we serve a lot of applications out to our um, our local community um, practitioners. And so um, we had a robust Citrix environment for people to, um, to get in and, and um, pretty tight security built around that. And so um, that wasn't um, uh, a huge issue for us. Uh, it was more um, sort of the demand signal of, we need to get out now, now, now. And us on, on my team going, hold on a minute. I, I know you need to get out now but we need to do this right. Um, and so that was a um, sort of the challenge for us was making sure that security vulnerabilities we'd already mitigated against weren't reopened in a rush to um, get folks out of the office. Very good. All right, let's go to our next question. It's about zero trust. Uh, Jonathan, I wanna start with you. Is zero trust something health systems should work towards? Yeah, you know, you know, Phil and I both have a common background in the intelligence community. And in that world, it's all about need to know basis and uh, least privileged access, right? And the biggest challenge that came into this pandemic was that for the first time, healthcare and other industries began seeing their staffs 92, 98% working outside the perimeter. And that's really what drove the buzz around zero trust because zero trust posits this idea beginning back in 2009 that trust should not be based on whether you're inside the perimeter or outside the perimeter. Meaning if you're inside the firewall, you should be given no greater trust as if you're outside the firewall. And suddenly now everyone was outside the firewall. And, and so now you're trying to establish least privileged access across thousands of people. And in healthcare, it's everyone, everything from employees and care providers to patients and other stakeholders, right? And suddenly now uh, you have notions of contactless healthcare or telehealth mm -hmm. care, and, and that becomes a challenge. Um, big issues, as, as Krishna said earlier, about now not only company-provided devices, but personal devices, BYOD, and home environments that were never really designed to be enterprise grade at all, let alone HIPAA compliant, right? And, and so now there's a bigger emphasis on not only zero trust, but SASE and employing that across the board, but there's also an emphasis now on endpoint protection so that if you can't protect that network, at least you should monitor what's happening on that device and see whether something anomalous or malicious is, is going towards. And so towards specifically to the question, I think, yeah, it's absolutely something that a healthcare provider is gonna work towards because I think work from home and notions of contactless commerce moving forward are here to stay. And then the demands on healthcare will be, you know, on average today, for, for example, the average uh, hospital bed has about 15 different IP enabled, you know, IOT, IOMT devices connected to it. Now, going forward, you've got clinical and non-clinical functions that will be performed in homes, whether the employee homes or the patient's homes, and you'll have consultations done that way. And so you're going to need um, elements of cybersecurity cyber that are enterprise grade out to those remote locations. One example is, um, you know, our, our CMO at Fortinet has said publicly he has SD-WAN in his home to ensure that he's got re redundant and resilient ISP connections so we don't have outages. Um, you, so you have quality of service, quality of the experience, and you're delivering enterprise grade security because why? He's got fiduciary responsibilities, he's got elevated privileges, and he's the face of the business. And so I, I think, yeah, it is, it, it is something that all enterprises, including healthcare, are going to work towards because that's what the public expects. And they're going to expect that with 
anything that they interact with uh, online. We were joking earlier about digital natives. They all want to be wowed, continually wowed, and they want to have a great experience and they want to be able to access your brand at the time of their choosing and on a medium of their choosing. And oh, by the way, they expect you to have really great security and really great privacy at a very low price as well. So, <laughs> so yeah, we're, Unbelievable. We're, we're all working towards that. Yeah. Very good. Chris, uh, is zero trust something health systems should work towards? Oh, definitely. Um, I'm a very big proponent of zero trust. Unfortunately, I kind of dropped off the, the video feed, but um, definitely a big fan of zero trust. We were one of the first hospitals in the country to actually implement zero trust back in 2015. And one of the interesting parts of our story is how I made the decision to actually go zero trust. We actually decided to simulate what a mass malware outbreak would look like within the hospital. So we did an exercise where we took the ICAR test string, which for those not familiar with it is a harmless string of characters, but one that all antivirus makers will recognize as a virus. And we wrote a script to try to spread that through hospitals to try to see how things would laterally move through the organization. And we learned a lot of interesting stuff by doing that exercise. But one of the things we learned was that network segmentation was actually very effective at keeping the threat contained. The interesting thing is we had a segmented network at the time that was segmented by department. And the exercise taught us that even though we were segmented, if we're going to lose an entire department of the hospital, a particular clinical one, it was still going to be disastrous for hospital operations. So that really got us thinking about how we could take network segmentation to the next level. And that's kind of where our zero trust journey began. And if you look at all the ransomware attacks and other stuff against hospitals today, lateral movement is a huge problem with all those ransomware outbreaks. So anything organizations can do to begin to limit the lateral movement possibilities within their environment is a great thing. And I think zero trust is a really good goal to shoot for, for doing that. Excellent. Very good. Phil. Yeah, I think zero trust is definitely, um, you know, it's interesting the way you worded the question. Is it something health systems should work towards? Um, I, I think that that's um, absolutely true. Um, whether or not you ever actually get there, I mean, sort of a debate about whether you can actually ever get to zero trust anyway. Um, but in a health system, I think it's even more challenging because, um, you know, we're, we're charged with essentially protecting the most uh, valuable and private information um, that that anyone can have, but we're also federally mandated to share that information um, mm -hmm. across a wide base of users. And so um, you sort of have this paradox of, of well, I, I have to keep the door open um, and I have to allow things to go out of the door. Um, but I also can't allow, you know, the wrong things to go out the door and I can't allow the wrong things to come in the door. And so it, um, I think zero trust is, um, is, a, is a lofty goal for healthcare um, and certainly would, would love to see us achieve it. But I think it's, it's always going to be mitigated a little bit by the fact that we've got these mandates to share information um, widely. Yeah, for sure. Krishna? Yeah, we are definitely um, working towards that. And I think everything that Chris was saying is what we, our uh, security guys have done, and it's the same thing. And we uh, we, ha we uh, have uh, a large amount of uh, medical insurance data that we um, share for research and with other institutions for their research. So that is something that is very large in addition to our clinical data. And um, we definitely are in this direction of, um, you know, in the past we used to, you know, I'm sure you guys recall that we used to trust and then still verify. Um, and I think right now I, we don't trust anything, we, but we keep constantly monitoring everything that comes into our environment. So if, if you, uh, we cut it down more to, I guess the, um, the small micro segments of the network. So if you want access to our area, I only give you access to that area. You could be an internal person. Um, actually, the example that I would say is the faculty member or the physician who was who is in charge of this small um, uh, research um, data set. We give him access only to that area. We don't give him access to anything else. So you are very segmented. We only give you access to what you need. And once you're done, we cut it out. You could be an, you're still an employee, but we don't give access. I think we really need to be working towards that given the way um, the current um, trends are going with ransomware and other things. And I think segmentation of the network and bringing it down to further micro segmentation, which is what I think several people are already doing. Um, I think that's definitely the way to go. 
Krishna, do you find that uh, you ever have sort of political issues with someone wanting or demanding access to areas that you think they don't need? <laughs> I'm in a university environment, yes, what do you expect? <laughs> Uh, they want access to everything. Uh, no, we, uh, I think there's also, you know, it goes back to, you know, I, I believe that we need to, we constantly talk about, you know, building the uh, security culture. You know, people need to be aware that this is patient information. This is information that is not yours. It is someone, someone else's it's patient information. And, um, uh, all the um, all the hospitals we all have um, you know IRBs and uh, whenever anybody asks and however powerful or political they are we try to explain to them that there needs to be an IRB clearance as a project there's a specific medical process not IT nothing to do with IT you know, we need to make sure that you need to make sure that there's a reason why you need to access that particular piece of data and if if it is approved by IRB and the legal office and other things sure. They'll give you access only to that, but nothing else. It's a, it's right. a, it's easy for me to say this. It's very tough and yeah. at the same time to say this because if you're, you know, um, faculty members always demand certain things, and it's very tough to uh, to give it. Yep, yep. So sometimes uh, on the ground things uh, get a little stickier. Um, yeah. Next question, Chris. Let's start with you. How do health systems start? the process to implement zero trust and what's the best way to implement it? Sure, I can go through the process that we went through. Um, we actually started with our data center, but you could make an equally valid case for um, doing the endpoints. For the data center side, we went with uh, VMware's NSX and how we started was we started simple first. What we did is as we introduced the new tool, we started segmenting um, really well-known systems like our DNS servers, our DHCP servers. Every network engineer really understands the ports and protocols. It allowed them to learn the new tools, grow familiar with the product, while at the same time increasing our protection. We then moved on to our virtual desktops. Uh, reason being for virtual desktops is they tend to be clones of each other. So once we figure out a set of policies that worked for one set of virtual desktops, it allowed us to protect a large number of systems at once. Um, we then moved on to systems that we considered high risk in the data center and save systems that we considered complex but lower risk for last. On the physical network side, what we did was we um, largely did a NAC appliance for that. And we put policies in place that um, allowed us to have PC on our network to communicate with our server subnet, but nothing else within the organization. So that PC was locked down to communicating with our servers, which were then micro-segmented using the NSX product that controlled our data center. And that's kind of the overall architectural approach we took. In terms of actually um, going about figuring out how to do all that, what we did was started with an inventory. We took the time to learn all of the devices on our network. Once we knew where all the data was in the network, the most challenging portion was actually taking the time to see how data actually flowed between all those different devices on the network. And if you're gonna do zero trust, that's where you wanna spend the bulk of your time. It's actually taking the time to learn how data actually goes back and forth between all the various devices and systems that you have. That's going to be the most critical step. Um, the more time you spend there, the better your rules are going to be, the less you're going to break when you roll things out. And we did choose to roll things out slowly. We did it over a period of about 18 months to um, you know, fully segment and isolate everything. Uh, basically a system at a time to prevent breaking anything. But once you have those data flows mapped out, then you can use that as the basis for creating your zero trust policies, and um, then put the policies in place. And I'm very, very big on security testing. So for us, the last stage was actually to conduct you know, various pen tests, repeat that malware instance I talked about before, to actually establish that the policies we put in place were actually effective. And that's kind of at a really high level the approach that um, we took. I'm happy to drill down deeper too if there's any questions in that particular area. Excellent, I appreciate that. Uh, Phil? Yeah, I think, uh, um, as, as Chris said, you, you got to start with understanding what you have. Um, and then um, I, I know that one of the frustrations for me is, is sort of, you know, you sit down and you drop a plan and say, okay, well, this is how we're going to do it. Um, but the environment is constantly changing. So, um, you know, do, do I do I follow the plan? we got this new system coming in. Do I implement the security 
um, as we implement the project or, you know, because we're in the middle of a transition or do I just let the project go in the way it would have already, the way it would have before and then, um, and then come back to it later and, and how do you divide your resources and all that sort of thing. And those projects are typically delivered on really um, sort of stringent uh, timelines. And so um, I think um, balancing new project implementation along with existing um, security upgrades is a um, is a real challenge. It's something you have to think about in advance about how you're going to tackle that, so that you you make sure you can stay focused. Um, but yeah, you got to know what you're dealing with, um, and I think um, sort of as Chris talked about, you have to look at where your highest priorities are and and start with them. What are the most vulnerable areas? What are the areas that that certainly present the highest uh, or the the biggest target or or the best most lucrative target for someone and address those first. Um, so for us, that was um, uh, sort of fitting both paradigms, a, a new project and something high risk. Um, we just um, changed out all of our um, dispensing devices on all the medical floors for pharmaceuticals. And so when we brought that project in, uh, it was, hey, this is high risk. We need to make sure that th we've got this well controlled. And so um, we really were meticulous about implementing that project specifically uh, because it met um, both, of those, uh, both of those wickets. Perfect. Krishna? Yeah, um, I think I, I agree with everything that Chris and Phil said. I think what we did was very similar to what Chris was describing. We really spent time understanding uh, how the data flow worked and uh, what, what it was uh, from the place where we were sorting the data all the way to the end point. Uh, and uh, we made some decisions on the way. And, and I think sometimes... Um, it wasn't very clear, especially when we have these specific projects for um, for some research studies where we take clinical data out and do something with it. So we really needed, we need, we worked with the application developers. We worked with the, the people who had the data and we mapped it out to make sure that we understood exactly how the data was flowing. And then we made some decisions. I think many times when we have these types of very PHI data that people need to work with, we basically cut uh, the client end off. We put them through a terminal server, uh, came, allowed them to come into the data center and basically contained who was in there and who was doing what. And everything was constantly getting uh, monitored even there. Nothing can be taken out and nothing can be put in without our knowledge. So that we, we could do that only based on understanding how the data really flowed and what was the workflow, how they analyzed the data. I think that's probably the first thing that um, I agree with Chris is we need to study or whoever uh, needs to study is how is the data being used and where are you getting it from and what type of applications are you using to analyze the data and who is sharing at the end of it. And are there, um, that's where we start. And if you start doing that and they'll go granularly down, you know, uh, that would be the first uh, requirements list that we would gather to start in this direction of zero trust because we need to really make sure that we understand uh, what exactly are we applying this to. So, and if you do it in the wrong direction, that will also cause problems uh, because you're getting data from multiple sources for your, for your research or for clinical trials. So you just can't ignore um, um, all the different angles of the actual application itself before you start applying the security procedures. Very good. Um, Jonathan, uh, what are your thoughts about uh, what health systems might need in addition to working towards zero trust? Yeah, you know, it, it's pretty interesting because zero trust, the big push for zero trust came after the, some large federal agency uh, breaches in the intelligence community. And so when I look at zero trust, I, al I always look at the lessons learned from that. And, and Chris is, is absolutely right. The hardest part about zero trust is that eight, nine to 18 month process where you're doing data uh, classifications and you're trying to understand who owns what the criticality of, of those assets and what the underlying dependencies and SLAs are. There's no way of getting around that. So no matter what technology you end up using to, to implement that, that strategy, the legwork needs to be done up front. Now, but in addition to that, I, I take note that during the third week of this pandemic, NIST uh, came out with some guidelines on, on how to operate during this in, in a time. 
And I noted that amongst them, there was a very specific statement that said, look, you really need to consider cyberspace as a multidimensional hostile operating domain. The word hostile was inserted there from the definition of what cybersecurity is. And so the presumption moving forward, and this underlines what all of us do with regards to achieving reasonable care and security, right, is that you have to presume that your ecosystem, your network, your partner's networks, the devices that you all use are most likely already compromised and in many cases are under the control of an adversary and being used to target you. And with that presumption comes the idea that you're most likely already compromised. You're almost likely breached. In fact, I, I go back to a statement that the director of National Programs Protectorate made a couple of years ago. She was the equivalent of, of Admiral Rogers over at CyberCommand. And she said, look, Jonathan, we're all owned. The largest American corporations are already penetrated. They're already compromised. And so the other things I would say is, in addition to zero trust, which is not a solution or a product, it is an approach, it's iterative, it takes time. Um, use CASB, uh, your cloud access security brokerage to understand what your, your stakeholders are doing when they go into the cloud to access information and resources. And what are they doing with that? Are, are, are they downloading it to attach storage medium? Are they changing it from a confidentiality, integrity, and availability perspective? And then finally, if you believe that there's a chance that your enterprise is most likely already compromised and that PHI is, is out there on, on the dark web, engage a, a, a threat research capability that actively monitors those dark web marketplaces, right? And says, hey, is there anybody asking about my brand? Is there anybody offering information about my brand? Is there anyone offering um, my professor's uh, information for you, Krishna? Or is there anyone offering my students information or my patients information, right? And I think that's just another way that, that CIOs, CISOs, uh, and their teams can demonstrate reasonable care, meaning We've implemented the best-in-class strategy, zero trust as recommended by the various industry standards and the government organizations. We're using best-in-class technology like Fortinet, shamelessly, that is that is tested and approved and certified and all that sort of good stuff. And then finally, to, to round out our, our risk mitigation strategy, we've engaged uh, in threat research to understand if we've missed something, if a bad actor has been able to get inside our networks. And so it's also interesting to note that prior to the pandemic, the biggest threat vector for healthcare were insider threats. And whether it was to, to steal information or it was just because they were curious. There's lots of people who are curious about, you know, their ex-lovers, their former spouses, and they, you know, or presidential candidates. And they're going to try to get that information. So all of those things are now compounded by, by things driven by pandemic. But yeah, take a look at at CASB, UEBA, that user entity behavioral analysis capability, and then some threat research as well. Excellent, Phil. Uh, yeah, well, um, <laughs> I, um, I think, um, I think it's critical to um, look at the balance between um, security and clinical urgency. Um, it's always an issue here at Calvert. Um, so, um, kind of going back to the to the previous discussion about zero trust, um, you know, how how do we implement zero trust to make sure that we're able to make the information that's needed available when it's um, when it's needed uh, in a clinically urgent situation? And I think, um, you know, it, it it's possible um, to to really lock down data and and machines and all that sort of thing and render them completely unusable. Um, and so we've got to we've got to walk that fine line. And so um, I think it's um, it, it's really important as you're implementing, you know, security zero trust, to make sure that you're looking at um, what impact is zero trust having uh, on the users on the ability to deliver healthcare. We're, we're ultimately um, not here to secure data. We're here to save lives. And so um, you know, securing data is part of saving those lives, but um, we still have to make sure that we can still save lives at the same time. Well, you teed up my poll question perfectly, Phil. Uh, so here it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to launch the poll. Um, we hopefully we can get everyone to vote, and the panelists can vote as well. So here's the poll question. Taking on increased cyber risk during the height of COVID-19 in order to quickly deliver tools needed for remote clinical care was the right thing to do even if it resulted in a breach. So we've talked to lots of people in security and CIOs, and they talked about how the acceptable level of risk went up because you had to do things quickly. And so everything was not put through 
the rigors that it might have been in a normal situation. So in risk went up. Was that okay? Now, I know we say even if it resulted in a breach, that could mean a lot of different things in terms of severity. But anyway, it's a fun poll. So uh, answer it. Um, Phil, I think I, I know how you're going to answer. Um, but uh, go ahead. Uh, jump in, take the poll. And again, our panelists can take it as well. And then we will, um, we will look back at that and have people guess at the results. Um, I want to jump to my ask a co-panelist section because I want to hear what my speakers want to ask each other. Um, Jonathan, I would like to start with you and find out if you have a question for one or more. You can throw it out to everyone or a specific co-panelist. Yeah, you know, everyone is telling me that my healthcare friends are saying, look, the only thing that hasn't changed in this pandemic has been our budgets. Um, everything else has changed. The business model has changed. Customers' expectations have changed. Well, regulatory compliance requirements haven't changed. So the, the, what hasn't changed is budgets. And, you know, budgetary pressures are always tight anytime you're dealing in healthcare. Uh, are you guys seeing changes in spending priorities? Are they shifting towards more insecurity? Are they shifting more towards collaboration, productivity? What, what, what are you seeing? Because most everyone has told me, look, we're paused right now. Uh, a lot of those big IT projects, those cross-functional budgets, they sort of got frozen while we dealt with stabilizing this remote uh, working model. And now as we think about moving into post-pandemic, most of your peers are, are saying we're paused, we're reassessing what's moving forward, but most of them are shifting towards more collaborative uh, projects, more productivity enhancements. And, and I've seen a mix on security. I'm curious to see what you all are seeing in your healthcare organizations. Chris, let's start with you. Sure, we're kind of on the pause area, as mentioned, is it's um, budgets really haven't gone up or down for security. They're kind of holding constant. And I think a lot's gonna happen with what happens in the fall. Uh, right now, New York City is kind of on a COVID um, you know, downturn. Cases are down in New York, things like that. It's really gonna depend on how things remain come fall when um, you know, schools reopen and other stuff, whether COVID researches again, uh, that's really gonna dictate you know, priorities in the near future. So everything's kind of on a holding pattern until we see the direction uh, things are going to pan out. Phil? Yeah, I, I agree with Chris. Um, we're still sort of in a, in a budget pause and, um, and sort of um, trying to not commit to too much uh, as an overall health system because of, you know, we don't know what's coming. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it, you know, Jonathan said the new normal um, I think a lot of us in healthcare, we we don't we still don't know what that new normal is, um, unless the new normal is not knowing what the new normal is. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's really um, uh, I think a real a real challenge right now. I I haven't seen a um, I haven't seen a decrease in my budget, but I am seeing a lot more direction to you need to support remote work, you need to support telemedicine, and so um, what 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 I've seen is, so we, we built an environment, we built a, um, a hospital, a data center, a, a licensing structure and application architecture based on on-site work, on-premises work um, in a community hospital. Um, so now we have a significant portion of remote work and we're looking at more collaborative uh, sorts of things, but our, because the budget cycles are, you know, they're annual and, and contracts are on an annual basis, we're sort of in this period where we're, we're busting at the seams on some of the um, some of the licensing um, issues because um, you know like, like for instance uh, uh, Microsoft RDS licenses um, you know they're all per machine licenses because every worker had one machine. Uh, well, now we've got uh, we need to start looking at per user licenses because. Um, the, the users are using several machines. They're using a laptop we shouldn't be using at home, a desktop at work, and all that sort of thing. And so um, that's what we're seeing in terms of budget is, is how do we, we're, you know, we're trying to, to skate to where the puck is going to be, um, but we don't know where the puck is going to be. Krishna? Yeah, I think uh, we are in the similar pattern as um, the other Phil and Chris. Uh, we are in a pause. Uh, but I think my budget probably hasn't gone up, but definitely whatever budget we have, um, it, now we are working more towards, as Phil was saying, uh, collaborative uh, areas and increasing our licenses for collaboration. So we recently increased all our licenses for our VPN connections, for example, and uh, VMware um, and WebEx licenses. So we 
we are going in the direction of, you know, we need to enhance and consolidate what we currently have. And we need to be very agile. And if necessary, and if, as people say, there may be another wave of COVID lockdown. And if that is the case, we need to be able to be very quickly scale up uh, and not get tied up into buying licenses and waiting and buying hardware. None of it. We want to go in a different direction and say, okay, we have a whole bunch of these VMs so we can fire that up as we need. Uh, we went through that exercise earlier in the spring, but with a lot of difficulty, but then I, hopefully we won't repeat that mistake again. Um, so we're going in that direction. We redid all our WebEx stuff because as you know, uh, classes actually started today, uh, yesterday, first day of classes. So we have the entire school doing online. <laughs> so uh, it's much, the student community is much larger in the fall compared to the spring. So uh, uh, we have to make sure that we scale up very quickly. Um, and, you know, they have, uh, again, it goes back to what we were talking earlier about, you know, endpoint protection. So, you know, we encrypt all our laptops as a rule. So that has really helped in our current thing. So if you are using an office laptop, as we call it, we are good to go, but I can't control what your home uses. Right. And given the way things are today, I, know you, I don't know what machine from home you're using to connect through VPN. It's a catch. Uh, it's difficult. Um, but we are, on our budget, we are trying to make sure that, you know, how can we uh, mitigate some of those things and be able to scale up? I think um, that that's where we are. We're trying to be very agile uh, in doing this, especially when we are in an, era, in an era of, you know, don't trust, but keep verifying every step of the way. It's, a, you know, it's difficult to balance both. So yeah, that's really where we are at the budget. All right, we're going to look at the audience poll. I want to get some guesses from our panelists on the results. Give me your number for percentage agree. What percentage have agreed with this statement, Chris? Uh, I'll say 60. 60. John? Uh, I'm going to say 55. 55. Phil? <laughs> uh, my guess is it's probably more than that. I, I'd, I'd say we're north of 70. 70. Okay. Krishna? Yeah, I would say 65, 70 would say agreed. <laughs> what, what, you got to give me one number, Krishna, not two. 65. <laughs> 65. All right. And the winner the is... The price is right. Yeah, that's right. The winner is Phil. The answer is 85%. Wow. Oh! 85%. So, do what you got to do. Take care of the patients. Worry about everything afterwards. I think that's the uh, the message there. All right, we have a few the more minutes. Caveat. Go ahead. Go ahead. The only caveat I would add to that, though, is in a modern hospital, cybersecurity does equal patient safety to some extent. Right. Uh, you had a lot of okay. like the one in the Czech Republic that were taken out during peak COVID, and that was a really disastrous for a patient care yeah. situation. So, yes, a certain level of increased risk is probably acceptable, but you also have to balance that, too, because at some point you are introducing patient safety issues as well. Yeah, good point. Now you see why, why the survey said that the average CISO lifespan is about 14 months right now and that almost 18% of CISOs are functional alcoholics. So, oh my God. That was in a Forbes oh magazine God. article. Yeah, that's true. Oh it's, it was in a Forbes, uh, Forbes magazine uh, survey of CISOs. Yeah. It's good stuff. All right. Let's try, let's try and bang through uh, a few more questions. I'll get one person away in on each of these. How do health systems secure critical remote locations such as clinics or testing facilities? Um, let's go with you, Chris. Sure. We take the same zero trust approach. Is it's, um, We've done that for basically our entire network. So even for our remote assets, they still have the, the same policies. Um, we have them locked down so they can only talk to you know, the servers they need to and nothing else. So we don't really differ in our approach to that. We have that same zero trust approach rolled out across our entire enterprise. All right, very good. Next question. What's enough security for healthcare going forward? Is HIPAA compliance sufficient? Krishna. Um, well, in my opinion, I think it's probably not enough. Um, um, I, I think... Um, 
HIPAA provides a lot of um, regulations and ideas as to who should access what and how, et cetera. But in today's world, we are way past that, I think. I think we are, you know, the, the guys who, uh, the hacking ability is so high compared to when HIPAA regulations were written. I think uh, what um, uh, we are going towards is the zero trust. I think that's really where we should be going and we should have much more granular um, uh, rules and way that we give access to data and and, it, and we constantly make sure that um, we need to somehow make sure that, you know, once their job is done accessing the data, they are removed. Even they're, if they're from the inside, same treatment as the guys said, I think Jonathan was saying earlier, whether you're inside or outside, doesn't make a difference. I, I use the same rule. Uh, and I think that's, I, I'm not a HIPAA expert, but I think from the whatever I know, I think this is way beyond what HIPAA um, allows us to have so that's very good very good thank you all right next question phil what is the biggest security threat for healthcare complacency um i i think uh, i think it really just comes down to if you're if you're not constantly evolving um your security environment if you're not constantly looking for where um, the next threat is coming from, I can assure you the threat guys are looking. So, um, you know, being complacent is, is where you're going to lose. And, also, and unintentional mistakes too, right? I mean, we are in a, yeah. coming from an academic uh, institute and a hospital. Yeah, that's, they don't really realize that they're doing um, uh, those kinds of mistakes and they'll send an email to a bunch of people with all the patient IDs in there. It has happened. Uh, you you try to put everything in, but you, yeah, I agree. It's also why testing security is so important because you will discover a lot of misconfigurations and other stuff. You may have a control in place, but you might find out it's not as effective as you thought it was, things like that. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a huge, huge proponent of constantly testing security. And I think that's the approach more and more organizations need to adopt. Um, going back to kind of tie the HIPAA question too. Uh, compliance alone is really not enough. Um, I kind of view compliance as training for like a D grade in the class. Yes, you check the boxes, you may pass, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing a good job. And um, I think we need to really begin to take an approach that's more evidence-based, really test to see what works, what doesn't work. And in a lot of cases, I mean, compliance standards have been shown to actually harm security. Uh, for example, the NIST password standards, uh, for years they recommended frequently changing passwords. It turns out when somebody actually measured it, that that actually is not the recommended practice anymore, that it actually did more harm than uh, actual good. And it makes you wonder how many other things are our compliance standards that you know may not actually be great for security. So I, I really think as an industry, you need to really begin to establish a more evidence-based approach to security, really take the time to evaluate and measure what actually works and, and not just rely on uh, compliance alone. Yeah, and, and I agree. I think compliance, compliance is part of reasonable care, but it's not the totality of it. I think a, a good way to help your, your board and your teams understand why you're doing things is the, the questions are often asked after a breach or disruption is, what did you know? When did you know it? What did you do about it? And was that reasonable? I think that's, the, the, that's always how I frame, how I prioritize, how I identify, and how I try to get support for, for, for my initiatives, right? Is, is that, was that reasonable? And I think when you look at the litigation, when you look at the investigations and the class action lawsuits, at the end of the day, they're not being compliant as helpful as part of reasonable care. But if you don't have things like compensating controls, right? If you have things like um, ensuring that you've got internal segmented firewall that can help mitigate against vulnerabilities if your patching regime is not up to par, if you don't have up-to-date security awareness training, if you're not using multi-factor authentication, you know, those are types of things that lend towards having a reasonable level of care, right? So. Chris, uh, real quick, I know you uh, do some work, create some, some uh, guidance. You want to talk a little bit about that, documents that you can direct people to, some of the work you've done? Sure, I, I chair the AHIS uh, Incident Response Committee. Uh, we've done actually a lot of work um, for providing hospitals guidance on how to respond to different types of security incidents. We make a lot of tabletops available. The um, Actually, the mock malware incident I talked about before, that's actually released as guidance, so hospitals can actually download a copy of that and walk them through the whole exercise. Uh, we've also did some guidance for uh, 
COVID, how hospitals and information security departments and IT departments can prepare for COVID. That was released by March. And we're about to release another tabletop, which actually walks you through a lot of the um, potential caveats that going remote and having a you know, scattered workforce and other stuff may have on the incident response process. Um, little things like, you know, did you forward the phone call to the proper person since they're now not in the office, they're at home? Uh, things like that can really screw up and break your process, you the delays. Um, so they're, they're very interesting exercises to consider. For anybody mm -hmm. interested in those, uh, they're available from uh, ahis.org under the CISO resources uh, tab. Excellent. All right. Um, I want to give Jonathan uh, a crack at this last question, and I think it's a good place to wrap because we're about out of time. Jonathan, you're on the spot. Uh, I guess you could do two or four if you want. You don't have to do exactly three recommendations, but you pick. Yeah. You, you know, one, I, I <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll do from my background when I was part of that Verizon data breach investigations team, right? And and these recommendations have been pretty much the same for, for many years. Um, in addition to everything we've just, just said, um, take a look at, at uh, the Center for Internet Security's 20 critical cybersecurity controls, you know, as a baseline. Um, use multi-factor authentication, uh, security awareness training, um, and a rigorous approach around um, application vulnerability management. And then finally, I would say, because 99% of all vulnerabilities that were exploited were known for at least a year, uh, and patching is very difficult. There's all types of reasons why people can't or are unable to patch or miss their patching cadences. Have a compensating control in a next generation firewall that has those updated signatures so that you can fall back if patching becomes erratic. And sometimes it does, especially during these erratic environments. And, that and just understand that 80% of all the attacks that lead to disruptions and data breaches could be mitigated through simple and intermediate controls. And then shamelessly, I will say that that's the reason why we have <laughs> that security fabric. It's to cover those gaps in, in integration, visibility, and automation, right? And, and I think that's, that's what I would do. Thank you. Shamelessly. No problem. <laughs> and it was, it was, that was fine. It was not very shameless. That was just fine. No problem there. Um, well, that was a wonderful event. Uh, we're about out of time regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy from our team and you can go to our website to register for our upcoming webinars. With that, I want to thank our panel very much. Chris Friends, Phil Campbell, Krishna Sankhavaram, Jonathan Nguyen, and I want to thank Fortinet very much for sponsoring, and um, that was a wonderful event. I want to thank our attendees for coming. With that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.